This episode of New Politics was released on the 3rd of December, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the big media fail in the Victoria election, Scott Morrison censured by the Parliament, and the parliamentary year comes to a close. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, still not censured by the Australian Parliament. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. It's coming up to the end of the year, but there's still so much going on in politics. First of all, there was the Victoria election last weekend, and contrary to what everyone in the media wanted and predicted, it was another crushing defeat for the Liberal Party. And in the end, it wasn't even close. For the past three months, most of the mainstream media predicted that Daniel Andrews had to lose the election, that it was going to be very, very close, that there was a surge for the Liberal Party, he was possibly going to even lose his own seat. But while there was a 3% swing against the Victoria government, and remembering that they did have a high watermark in 2018, Seat-wise, it's more or less the same result as the 2018 election. In 2018, Labor won 55 seats. This time around, it could be 54 or 55 seats. For the Liberal National Coalition in 2018, they won 27 seats. This time around, it could be 26 or 27 seats. So not much difference there. And this is despite the entire media edifice... News Corporation, Seven West, Nine Media, the ABC, being totally against Daniel Andrews and the Labor Party, not just during the election campaign, but for the past three years. Here's Daniel Andrews the day after the election result. Look, there was a moment there, we just saw it, where you took to the stage, securing this, uh, this third victory, and you, know, you had the fists pumped. It, it looked like a moment of, of vindication after a very tough few years for the state and for, no doubt for you and your family as well. Is that, is that what it was? David, my politics has never been about the win. It's always about the work. You've got to win to do that. But I grew up being taught every day that with opportunity comes a profound obligation to do your best, to work hard, to do what matters. And that's exactly what I've delivered over these last eight years. And I'm humbled and so grateful, so, so grateful that Victorians have re-elected a majority Labor government. But give us a bit of a sense of that, that personal feeling, because we could see it in your face. Well, this has been... Our politics may well be divided, but our community is absolutely united. We got vaccinated. We looked out for each other. Those acts of kindness and compassion, it makes you so proud to lead the best state in our nation and a state that has a faith in science, a state that is prepared to make big sacrifices to save tens of thousands of lives... It's not about being vindicated, it's about our positive plan being endorsed and now getting the opportunity and having that profound obligation to get things done. So Daniel Andrews is just focused on doing the job, he won the election and the media filling the airwaves and their newspapers with one-sided analysis and basic propaganda didn't seem to make much difference to the final result, so why do they bother? 
it was clearly an attempt to remove Daniel Andrews, who the right, from a certain point in the spectrum on, hate. Probably they only hate Jacinda Ardern more. Maybe not down to the levels of vitriol that Julia Gillard was able to provoke in them. The people who hate him really, really hate him, which is why it was so irresponsible and so inappropriate and so just ethically wrong for the Victorian member ex-military to say she wanted him to become a pink mist. There are people out there who have that level of hatred towards him that somebody might have acted on that and assassinated him. We don't want this to happen, of course, but the level of hate and vitriol, and it distorts them to the fact that they were all talking to their conspiracy friends, where somebody like Avi Yemeni is presented as a, a reasonable voice of opposition and not the disturbed individual he seems to be. The protests every weekend down on the steps of Parliament House, which their supporters will tell you are huge, but the footage suggests there's a good few hundred people there. And I suppose if you never spoke to any Victorian and you only read the mainstream press and you didn't take notice what was going on in Victoria apart from that debate that Daniel Andrews was this dictator tyrant who was ruining Victoria, if you approached that uncritically, you might sort of think that. But the trouble is, of course, is that Victorian voters don't live in a bubble. They could see that Daniel Andrews had done mostly good to the state. Yes, he made mistakes. Yes, he did things that could be criticised and should be criticised. But on balance, he was a better Premier than not and voted him back in, as you said, with almost identical seats. He didn't get a gain. I was surprised that the Liberal Party didn't lose much. I thought they might have been a bit more wiped out. I mean, it's not a great position that they're in, don't get me wrong. But I, I thought that we might be looking at another Western Australian or Queensland where the, the party's totally wiped out. Now, there's a lot of pre-selection issues in Victoria, but it would seem to me that those 25, 26 seats, whatever it is, would be a great basis to reform the party at all levels, local, federal and state, and get good candidates in and work out good policies that are broadly representative of the electorate. And also with those protesters that were either at the steps of Parliament House or down at Burke Street every pretty much every weekend, we've got to remember that even if those numbers were two or 300 people, there's mm. actually 5 million people that live in Melbourne. So it's only a small minority, but it was amplified through the media. And yes. despite the media amplifying virtually every conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer, pushing through that dictator Dan rhetoric, as you mentioned before, it seems that the electorate was satisfied overall with the response of the Victoria government during COVID. And it wasn't perfect, as you mentioned, but it was contrary to the message that the media kept on pushing through, that Daniel Andrews was going to be punished by all of those people and businesses that were affected by the lockdowns. That all didn't eventuate. And 
Ultimately, the election result wasn't even close. And I think this also confirms the diminishing relevance of the mainstream media and its influence in election outcomes. And this follows on from the -the over-the-top behaviour during the 2022 federal election where virtually every media outlet campaigned against Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. I don't think it's been a case where the media has been the absolute influence in previous election outcomes anyway, but elections are always based around a wide range of different factors. But it seems that legacy media is preaching to a smaller, older, conservative and diminishing audience and viewing and reading habits have changed. Younger audiences, they've never actually been a big part of legacy media anyway, and people are getting their news and information in a wide range of different ways. There's been a few really interesting statistics come through from from overseas, which I suspect may be reflected here to a greater or lesser extent. In Britain, two million people who voted for Brexit have died through old age and natural causes. And again, Britain doesn't have compulsory voting. And that's not to say, of course, that every old person voted for Brexit and every young person voted to remain. But sephologists have suggested that those two million votes probably would have changed the outcome of that referendum significantly the other way. Well, if only they had have died before the Brexit vote. <laughs> I'm not saying that. And the other thing too is that the US primaries, but it was young people between the ages of 18 and 24, what won it in the immortal words of the English Sun paper. Now, of course, the Democrats didn't retain the lower house, but they didn't lose it anywhere near as badly as might be expected, and they won the Senate. And again, these demographics are important because it showed that the voters weren't listening to the mainstream media. And I think we can look at the Victoria election and the federal election and show that the mainstream media or the legacy media, as you called it, was pretty much, if not ignored, then just weighed in as one factor as among many. And they get more and more desperate. And in fact, I was reminded of George Costanza on Seinfeld when Jerry says, what's the secret to telling a great lie? And George pauses for what seems like a very long time. It's probably not, but being television, it seems a long time. And he says, it's not a lie if you believe it. And I'm pretty sure that that was the attitude of the Herald Sun, Murdoch and Fairfax. And questioning the circumstance of his back injury, trying to get rumours up that it was Melbourne business interests who beat him up or union people who beat him up. There was a line of people wanting to beat him up for reasons, COVID, inoculations. And going back and trying to dig up dirt from a car accident he had 10 years ago, using his full cooperation with investigative bodies to somehow show that that makes him corrupt, unlike other premiers we might name. We're watching, I think, the death of legacy media. Now, it may come back in a rebirth, it may modify, but I think we're, in, we're seeing the death rattles and whether they can support it. I did see someone in the know suggest that the age only had about six years left in it. I thought that was rather generous, but that's probably about right. Well, I think it also depends on what they'll learn from this experience as well. And many media outlets, they've actually claimed that there's nothing to see here. They've done nothing wrong. Some journalists actually started to blame the public and suggesting that there's a new form of Stockholm syndrome known as the Melbourne syndrome. But there was actually a good piece of analysis and reflection from Raphael Epstein from the ABC in Melbourne. 
Last week, particularly towards the end of the week, um, some of the polls were showing the parties neck and neck. It had always been Labour out in front, but then they were, were, were neck and neck. Was that media-driven, as you're saying, uh, by the Liberal candidate, or did the pollsters get it wrong? The pollsters didn't get it wrong. The media rehashed old polls. There isn't a published poll that had the government in an uncomfortable position. The media, and especially the tabloid media, and then the TV news bulletins picked it up, perceived that the gap was narrowing. It made me question what I thought was going on. I was like 50-50, Labor majority, Labor minority. But if you go back and look at the polls that were actually published, any of those polls would have had the Labor Party very happy and in front. The media made the mistake of thinking that they should be cheerleaders for a cause. And I think the media needs to go back and question, especially when they're uh, fueling conspiracy theories and running stories about steps. And I think there are genuine questions some in the media have to answer. We, you and I, have to work very hard to build trust and to maintain trust. And if any of the people within our ecosystem make the mistake of turning themselves into cheerleaders, that erodes faith in all of us. And I think there was a significant element of that. If you read the newspapers and watched the TV news bulletins in this state over the last three or four weeks, you'd be hard-pressed to see the result represented. That's a significant problem because we need, uh, we need people to trust us. I don't want politicians permanently and only communicating with social media. I think they need our vetting. Uh, I do think there are significant questions for the media to answer over the last four weeks and a bit longer. And I think that's the key message. The media does need to change the way that it reports the news and especially on political news. And that assessment isn't just coming from a partisan perspective. I've been a consumer of the news since I was a kid and I've worked in the media for a long, long time. And as someone who works in the media, you want a media that's professional, that's reliable and informative, not some propaganda outlet that just feed you rubbish all day long. And last week we did suggest that if Labor won the election in Victoria, there needs to be some serious reform of the media industry. And let's see how that goes. But the media seem to be obsessed about Daniel Andrews having a bronze statue made up of him. And that's going to be created after he reaches the premiership for 3,000 days and is going to be displayed at Treasury Place. The Herald Sun complain about this as well. They complain about the statue. The age started circling all the wagons around their journalists and their election coverage. And the ABC's 7.30 program, and that's promoted as the ABC's national flagship current affairs program, after their weekly anti-lockdown and anti-Victoria government stories for almost three years, they didn't even mention the election result at all. And I think the case is still strong for media reform. Some people are suggesting that because their unhinged behaviour in the Victorian election campaign and over the past three years, it didn't actually swing too many votes at the election and might have actually shifted votes the other way. But I think that maybe, you know, they're suggesting that maybe reform isn't so desperately needed. But I still think that there needs to be some kind of change because it is really irresponsible behaviour. Well, one, it clearly doesn't work. And I don't think it's worked for a long time. I think, too, Steve Brax said something along the lines of he doesn't mind the papers or the media having a position, but you still have to be fair in your reporting. You can be right wing, left wing, centrist, whatever options there are left after those, <laughs> pro mining, anti mining, all of that, but you still have to be fair in your reporting. And Fairfax does do some excellent reporting from time to time. News Corp does do some excellent reporting from time to time. ABC does some excellent reporting, probably a bit more often than from time to time, but the big legacy media companies are capable of it, particularly in Victoria, 
they went totally off the rails. Seems to be an international thing too. There was this great clip of Santa Marin and Jacinda Ardern meeting and the first question is asks, are you two meeting because you're women of a similar age? Like Justin Trudeau and Rishi Sunak might meet because they're two guys of a similar age. You know, just bizarre. It's a worldwide sickness. The continual promotion of Donald Trump through the mainstream media, the continual promotion of the Brexit people in Britain, instead of just letting them die the death that they are so close to and letting the countries being run properly. And I guess the media or elements of the media likes being part of the process. But when the papers or when the media tries to become agents of influence rather than agents of information, it's time for them to rethink. And of course, the fact that more and more people are going to independent news sources and circulations are in what seems to be a terminal decline is probably not helping. The other thing too is that there's a whole range of context as well that we don't have time to get into here. It's not just poor reporting. It's a whole range of other. There's new ways of consuming media. There's new competition, etc., etc. But the big players are going about it, it seems to me, the complete wrong way. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment, or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. Scott Morrison has been censured by the Parliament for secretly acquiring five ministries in 2020 and 2021, and while what he did was not unlawful, it's one of the most bizarre incidents in Australia's parliamentary history. There was no need for him to do this, there was absolutely no need for him to keep it a secret. He hasn't actually offered any valid explanation for it, and it totally undermines the principles of Westminster democracies. The Opposition did label this censure motion as a grubby political exercise, probably not as grubby as setting up five secret ministries, I'd say, but it's a situation that couldn't just be left behind or forgotten about. And there was a report into Morrison's behaviour produced by the former High Court judge, Virginia Bell, and that's probably where this matter will end. And of course, there's an element of politics to this censure motion. The only people who can remove Morrison from Parliament are the people in the electorate of Cook and only at an election. 
So it's probably the most that can be done at this stage. But it's not like Morrison was a perfect Prime Minister, far from it. But this is something that should never have happened and the public needs to keep being reminded about it, I'd say. The Liberal Party gave Labor a perfect electoral campaign for at least the seat of Cook, but also for all the seats of the people who shook his hand at the end. Uh, all they need to do is go around to, the, to each individual seat of each in- individual member who went up and shook his hand after his bizarre speech, and we'll get back to that, and say this person supports Scott Morrison, and that's them finished in their seat, I think. You're absolutely correct when you say the only people who can remove Scott Morrison from Parliament is the electorate of Cook who can vote him out next time. And I suppose it can be he can be disendorsed by the party. We know, though, that secret and or discreet late-night visits can be made to offices where long and hard discussions can be had about the viability of finishing your term. This happens in, in all parties. That may happen too, and then he decides that it's within the country's and the party's best interest to stand down and let it go on. Given that his job prospects seem pretty slim, he's been put onto a couple of volunteer committees outside of Parliament, mostly to do with Pentecostalism. He did try and muscle his way into the National Rugby League, which was rebuffed by a fairly polite, no thanks, don't bother asking again, as Josh Frydenberg tried to muscle his way into the AFL. The jobs that went to, say, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd, and and even Tony Abbott, as inappropriate as that job was, but he got a job, these don't seem to be heading to Scott Morrison. He's gone onto the speaker's circuit where you get paid $50,000 a speech. But, of course, everybody said, oh, who'd pay him? Sure, you can be paid, but you've got to be hired first. And he's not an inspiring speaker. It's, it wouldn't, wouldn't be like sitting in, say, with Barack Obama, who electrifies a room when he speaks. I'm going to be controversial here, but even, say, Donald Trump, who amongst his supporters is very effective as a speaker among his supporters. <laughs> oh, well, I think bizarre is the word of the week at the moment. So going off to see Donald Trump speak, well, that would be quite bizarre, but it sort of fits into the flavour of the month at the moment. So the bizarre nature of Scott Morrison, it does seem to continue. And I think he must exist in some kind of alternative universe or something like that, because none of this actually makes any sense. And there were some suggestions that the Seven Mountain Mandate of the Pentecostals is involved here, and that's based on the idea of taking over the seven main areas of society, and that includes family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and, of course, government. Now, if Scott Morrison actually came out and said, well, this is the reason why I've done all of this, I'd actually accept that. I still wouldn't accept the behaviour, but as a reason being offered, as bizarre as all of that sounds, I would actually accept his reasoning. And he's actually claimed that all anyone had to do was ask him and he would have revealed all of the details. And how do you go about that? If you don't know that this sort of thing has happened and wouldn't expect it to happen, would you just roll up to a press conference and say, well, Scott, by the way, have you taken over any health or finance, treasury, home affairs or science portfolios recently? Like all of this is just so bizarre and just engaged in an alternative reality. It just, As I said, it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Yeah, and some of the more extreme members of the right are saying, oh, Whitlam did it. Whitlam did no such thing. He had the famous duumvirate, but that was how he could get to work. It was properly gazetted. It was properly announced. It was 
totally legal and totally proper and only done for a short time till the various seats were sorted out so he knew exactly who he had to pick for his ministry. So this was a totally different thing. Morrison had put himself in after there were already ministers and there's a whole lot of unanswered questions about decisions that were made in this period as to who made them and why they were made. And to get back to that Seven Mountains thing, we don't know that it's true. We suspect it may be true, but there, there is no real evidence for it. But it's the type of thing that doesn't really reflect mainstream Australia at all. And they know it doesn't. That's why they keep it secret and that's why they do it by stealth. And we can see that through the poor appointments in certain high-level government jobs why they'd keep it secret. And I think the role of the Governor-General has to be scrutinised as well. Morrison and David Hurley, they're two of the more bizarre characters in parliamentary history. Hurley's not so well known. Of course, he's the Governor-General, but still not many people know about him. But it seems that people like him do their work in the background while no one's watching. And the two of them have created one of the more bizarre episodes in parliamentary history. There's the word bizarre again. And as a result of his behaviour, there have been calls for David Hurley to be sacked, and that's a little bit more complicated. The only person who can sack the Governor-General is Anthony Albanese. He can recommend to King Charles to withdraw the commission from David Hurley, and King Charles would then have to follow that recommendation. It wouldn't create any constitutional problems. It might create some other political problems, but it's probably best at this stage to use this as an example for why Australia should move to a republic. At the moment, the Prime Minister can choose the Governor-General and they can choose absolutely anyone they want. They could actually put in Caligula's horse if they wanted to, although I do admit that might be a little bit unwise and a bit weird, but there needs to be a change here. It just goes to show that there's not enough safeguards in the system that we've currently got in place. Yeah, convention was a brilliant thing that worked pretty much for 300 years but it required the trust of the people. And there were I don't want to say that we had this golden age where every single prime minister was a perfect example of what a prime minister should be. And when I say 300 years, of course, I'm counting British Parliament where a lot of our conventions come from. But even the lesser prime ministers, even the more odious prime ministers, tried to work within the principles of, of the precedent. And if they were caught out... They resigned. They may have been kicking and screaming. They may have thrown huge temper tantrums. They may have tried to subvert it. But ultimately, they survived because the people who supported them knew that the convention was important. Morrison flouts convention, as did Trump, as did Johnson, as did many other of these installed by far-right media people and others. And, of course, what happens if you censure someone and they don't resign or if you impeach them and they don't resign or if they lose a vote in parliament and they don't go to an election nothing because the system's not in place so this is all a part of the final chapter of the morrison government even though they left in may 2022 but there still might be some more bits and pieces to to come through but the liberal party had the opportunity to create that distance between themselves and the morrison era Many Liberal MPs were critical of Morrison in private, and this was their big chance. Now, I realise that if they probably move against Morrison now, it might further damage their chances if they berate the guy that they supported for over three years, and there'll be those questions about, well, where's your courage of convictions? Why didn't you do something about Morrison when he was actually in office? But the Liberal MPs, they all left the House of Representatives while the Attorney-General was still speaking about the censure motion and they shook hands with Morrison on their way out. 
Morrison didn't only deceive the Australian public. He deceived his staff. He deceived the Liberal Party. He deceived almost every other Liberal Party MP and senator across Australia. Yet here they were shaking his hand and trying to do everything they could to protect him. This was their big opportunity and they fluffed it. They'd been blaming him for everything. And one of my criticisms of this is that while he was a big part of it, he wasn't the only factor in what's wrong with them. Because I think they're so terrified of losing to Labor, they line up to shake his hand, they start the thing that this is just retribution, that they hated Morrison and that the Labor Party is just getting back at him. I don't quite understand. Good politics sometimes is to lose, so you can regroup, come back stronger. They could get rid of the dead wood. They could get rid of the whole idea of the Morrison thing. It's not as if he was John Howard, who, for all his many, 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 many faults, was extremely electorally successful and had a level of personal popularity that, in terms within the party. He was deeply respected and even liked in the party. Morrison was never any of those things. So it's just strange. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment, or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. So dry your eyes and turn your head. So, David, we are into December and the Parliament has ended for the year. Anthony Albanese suggested that MPs would need to sit on Saturday to pass all of Labor's proposed legislation, but nothing sharpens the mind of an opposition more than threatening to make them work on a Saturday. The opposition complained bitterly about working on that Saturday and everyone else has to do it in the world, so why can't they? But as it turned out, Labor's Industrial Relations Bill was passed, as did the legislation for the National Anti-Corruption Commission. And these are two massive legislative victories for the Labor government. Anthony Albanese ends the parliamentary year behind the polls. Industrial Relations and Anti-Corruption Commission legislation passed. Inflation has dipped slightly. He was able to relax and go to a Nick Cave concert in Canberra during the week. And I think you do have to lap up these times for as long as you can as a politician because they're not going to last for too much longer. And before everyone gets too excited, Kevin Rudd also enjoyed high support six months into his prime ministership and Labor at that time was in every single state and territory government around Australia and and many people at that time said that Labor was going to be in office for at least the next decade or two. Things didn't quite turn out that way but after seven months in office I think the Labor government should be happy with its achievements so far. Yeah I, I think so. There's been surprisingly little scandal Normally by now we've started to lose a minister or two through not understanding how forms work or from 
being overconfident in what they think they can get away with or just from being totally dishonest. It hasn't even been the whisper. Even the hugely hostile press hasn't been able to find any travel rotting or time off rotting or anything like that. It's the two major policy, the NACC, which was passed this week through the parliament with a couple of Greens amendments. It looks at first glimpse to be a pretty good model to do this. And if they put the right person in as the commissioner, one of the strengths of the New South Wales ICAC in the early 90s was the appointment of Ian Temby QC, who was remarkable at the job. And if they can find somebody like that, it will set the NACC up to be one of the key bodies in the world. The other one too was the IR bill. The interesting thing there was that David Pocock came through at the end and his conditions were making sure that welfare, people on benefits, were also looked after. And that's really admirable that not only is he thinking of lower paid workers, he's also thinking of people who aren't working for whatever reason. So any doubts I had of him have been, if not dispelled, then at least watered down a lot. Well, that's also the nature of being an independent senator mm. as well. So Senator David Pocock, he did put his support behind Labor's industrial relations bill. So the legislation, that's gone through now. And, and But I think for the future, the Labor government's found a willing accomplice to get their legislation through the Senate, and provided that they do get the support of the Australian Greens as well. And as you mentioned before, we were a little bit sceptical about David Pocock, mainly because we didn't know what to expect from him. But He seems like someone that Labor can deal with in the Senate and they might not need the support of Senator Jackie Lambie anymore. Apparently, and I heard this on the fourth-hand grapevine, she was really annoyed with Pocock who managed to do the deal with the government before she had really started speaking to them. That is understandable, but it's also probably, again, goes to that notion of her seeming lack of understanding of how things work. The deal that gets picked is the best deal, and if you don't present the best deal, or indeed any deal, you've got no chance. And I suppose kudos to the government too for allowing Pocock's amendments and all the Greens' amendments. Now, of course, the the Greens weren't in quite the position of power I think they thought they were, because they had run on a National Anti-Corruption Commission, and Had they knocked it back, it would have been a knock to their credibility, provided it was a good model, (laughs) if that makes sense. A good model has been put up. It's probably not perfect. And I say it's probably not perfect because nothing is perfect. But it's a model that seems that it will work and will seem to do the thing that it's meant to do, which is put trust back into federal politics, which has been lost over the last eight years. And the National Anti-Corruption Commission, that was actually a key promise by the Labor Party in the lead-up to the federal election campaign. And the legislation for this was actually passed by the Senate, and that was something that Scott Morrison promised all the way back in November 2018 and couldn't do anything about it for three and a half years. And now it's been implemented after seven months by this new government. So the more... Labor does on these sort of key issues. I think it just keeps highlighting how lazy the previous coalition government actually was. But the coalition, it's had time to reflect upon their election loss in May this year. And it's also had a lot of reasons 
that were provided to them yet again in the Victoria election on the weekend, but seems like they're just not listening or not prepared to to listen. And based on their recent actions, they've decided that if they want to get back into office in the near future, that they'll have to provide more hate, more bile, more division, mm. less policy, less ideas, and hope that things will fall in their favour. And I can't see that being a winning formula for them. And the most recent act from the coalition has actually come from the Federal National Party, and they've announced that they won't support the voice to Parliament. They don't know the details, they haven't seen the details, and they're not providing any options or alternatives. But despite all of that, they've decided that they're not going to support the voice to Parliament. And aside from this being a mistake on the issue itself, it's caused divisions within the National Party. Andrew G, he's another National Party MP from Wagga, he said that he actually will support the voice to Parliament. The WA Nationals have also said that they'll support the voice to Parliament. Now, if David Littleproud was a competent leader of the National Party, he would have actually checked with all of his MPs or checked with other branches of the National Party because it's now going to cause problems for him and problems for the coalition. One of the things that we haven't really looked at is how consistent the National Party has been in its electoral success. It gets its 13 to 15 seats every election, despite the presence of Angus Taylor, of Barnaby Joyce, of Bridget McKenzie, of people who who really aren't electorally viable, but they keep getting elected back in. And those of us living outside their seats just shake our head and wonder. And it's to do with the power of the structure of the National Party and the lack of good candidates. Barnaby Joyce, when put up against a decent candidate, loses with Tony Windsor, for example. Little Proud has not overly impressed as leader of the National Party, but I'm guessing after the John McEwans and the Tim Fishers and the Doug Anthonys, it's hard to find people of that substance. Little Proud has done that stunt, really, to decide to knock back the voice, and he's glossed it in what seems to be anti-racist rhetoric. I suspect at heart is dog whistling to those voters who don't want the voice because they're worried that it will give Indigenous people an equal say in running the country and the same say as them. Well, I think politically provided an opportunity for the National Party and for the coalition to say, hey, look, we've changed, we're different, we're doing things differently now. Mm. And it's also the same issue with the censure motion for Scott Morrison. They decided that... Well, they had two options here. They could have sided with Scott Morrison or they could have opposed Scott Morrison. Same with the voice to parliament. They could have sided and promoted the voice to parliament or they could have opposed it. And both of those issues were opportunities to show to the electorate, yes, we are different, we have changed, we've listened and we've learnt, and they decided not to show the world that they have changed. And I guess that means that they haven't changed. (laughs) Yeah, they haven't changed and they don't want to change. They don't know how to change. The parties need a complete restructure The NACC could potentially devastate the National Party, given what we know or what the evidence suggests of the alleged behaviour of certain members of the National Party. And if the NACC acts with teeth and finds that what has been suggested in the media is actually true, we could see quite a lot of them out of Parliament and even in jail leaving the party with nobody to represent them. And true with the Liberal Party too, and of course it's possibly true with the Labor Party. 
The one party I will say it's unlikely with is the Greens because despite all of the anti-corruption bodies in the country, a Greens member has never been found guilty of any impropriety. Now, a lot of that is to do with the size of the Greens. They're not big enough to attract dishonest people. And if they get electorally more successful, that may change. And I, I certainly don't think it's any of the current Greens. As much as I may disagree with them from time to time, I don't think any of them are fundamentally dishonest people. But as new members come in and as they get more seats and as they start to wield more influence, that may change. Yeah, Little Proud probably wasn't quite the right person to lead the National Party, but then who was? And of course, these can change at any time. People grow in the job, people change their mind, people do wonderful things that you weren't expecting. Again, I hope that happens. All I want is a government that's good and an opposition that's good and everybody holds each other to account and the job gets done properly and Australia gets better. Is that too much to ask? That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.